but both you and my girlfriend felt like we should have an intro. I'm just throwing it out there because like I said, I I find that if I have, you know, if I have an idea and yeah. 50% of people agree with me, 50% don't, I go like, all right, I'll trust my gut. If, mm. if more if more intelligent people around me are like, maybe you should consider doing this. I'm like, all right, fine. Well, fuck. I maybe it'd be your sample it. size in three people, but who knows? And, but... <laughs> Al Miller. You are the owner and manager, the runner of the Supreme Court Tennis Club in Ontario. You also, I was expecting a yes there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you, also, you also uh, own and are uh, soon going to be operating the Supreme Court in Sierra Vista, Arizona. Yep. Pause for confirmation. There we go. Yep. Sorry, man. Yeah, um, and uh, you also run the high performance program out of the Supreme Court in Ontario. You've also helped out Tennis Canada and the OTA with some camps and and trainings and things like that. Uh, you've coached uh, some players in the top hundred and who've played junior slams. You also are the commissioner of a men's league in Toronto. <laughs> You're doing pretty good. Are you reading off something? You're doing pretty no, good. No, I'm not. I'm or just trying to think about everything I know about you. Yeah. I, yeah. Impromptu tattoo. All right. I think I'm out. That's my Al Miller introduction. Dude, you did pretty good. Nice. Um, we'll right. fact check that later. But yeah. Who am okay, I? Here's my Zach introduction. So Zach is Canada's best kept, kept secret that you're starting to hear more about. <laughs> um, Zach was a former part owner of the, the tennis center in uh, um, BC. Uh, he has a rich history of uh, certification and player development in Canada, including being a, a former junior Davis cup um, coach. I'm not sure if it was captain, but coach. Correct. Good. Nice. Um, recently, the past couple last year or so, Zach has been working at Academy of click. Is it click? <laughs> KLTK. KLTK, okay. Uh, Academy of KLTK in Sweden, where he works with uh, a lot of the, the top juniors in the country, including some uh, some players that are top hut in the world that I think have a chance to do really well this year, it's, it sounds like. Uh, mm-hmm. And Zach's also working with some professional players who are doing well, including the likes of Leo Borg and uh, etc. That's a nice intro. Did we do pretty good? That, that, you did very well. All right, get us rolling. Okay, so... As mentioned, this came up as uh, you were getting ready, setting stuff up on your end. And it's from a Twitter account called Mario uh, Bacardi. Um, Just calling people out. Just calling people out from the start, hey? Totally, man. No, Uh, no anonymity. Why? You got to give people credit. I don't. And as we know, everything that's posted on Twitter is always 100% accurate forever, always. But apparently this is a um, Emma Raducanu quote just from the other day. And she said, one of my biggest goals is to go out there on court and not think about my fitness, comma, not think about it. Um, oh, like start the timer. I've got 60 minutes to finish the match. I want to be able to just focus on the tennis. Uh, I think my goal in 2023 is probably to win a title. So I read this and then I stopped and then I reread it. And I was like, what did I just read? So just to break this down for you, Emma Kanu, who has won a, a Grand Slam, Yep. and didn't have a great year last year, is mentioning that one of her goals is to be in better shape for this year. And like, Zach, is this a clown world we're living in where one of the top athletes in tennis in the world is not already committed to fitness? And I know what the answer is to that, but this is so embarrassing, man. You're, you're, you're coming out strong, hey? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, we're taking one quote out of context, right? So it's it's hard to say 
obviously the, she gets her point across, but it's tough to say exactly what the the nuance is there. Um, I mean, I don't think she's saying it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think she's necessarily saying that she wasn't committed to her fitness before. It sounds like she's just making a, uh, taking a decision to be better with her fitness is Fair. what it sounds like. And if I break this down more, when she, when she's quoted as saying, I've got 60 minutes to finish the match. It doesn't suggest to me like she'd ever been that committed to her fitness if that's sort of the mindset that you're you're going in the matches with, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I what the what the way I understood it, and maybe you you read it the same way. The way I understood it was she's is that she doesn't want to feel like her body will let her down in any way, right? right. And and so I don't th- I I didn't get from that that she was going into matches thinking I've got sixty minutes here, but rather that you know maybe afterwards after the match she'd feel like oh man if I'd have been able to finish that quicker you know I'd have been fresher or I wouldn't have gotten injured or I wouldn't have felt this much pain or whatever, um, or maybe mid matches she starts she's starting to feel hey I'm getting tired oh I need to I need to close this out while I while I'm still while I'm still uh, fresh and and ready to go, um, you know and so that that's the way I understood it and. I think that's fair. I guess the point that you're sort of making is, is this normal for a player of her level? But I, at the same time, I mean, this was, uh, I don't know, maybe her second full year on tour or her first full year on tour. Right. Um, You know, so I don't know how reasonable it is to expect her body to be fully adjusted to the rigors of life on tour, because of course, she would have been at a, at a very high fitness level a couple of years ago, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But of course, then she's playing more, she's traveling more. She's, you know, she's competing more, training harder, training longer. Um, you know, that can take its toll. And so maybe there's a, there's a couple of years of, of uh, development to get back to a state where she can play at her full physicality or full intensity for a, for a long sure. match. Um, Listen, I, I totally acknowledge that I could be, I could be taking this the wrong way. Like that's certainly, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a random Twitter quote here, but would you, would you not suggest that she was always on a pathway where it looked like she was probably going to make it based on her, her upbringing to some extent. And if so, wasn't part of that upbringing or pathway, like the understanding of her team that at some point she's going to be playing a full WTA schedule and that she should probably physically be ready for that. Now, again, maybe she was ready at the time. Maybe stuff has happened. Like maybe we're digging in this, into this too much. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough without knowing more. I hate to be the the guy sitting on the fence, but I think it's tough without knowing more information. Like for one thing I know is like, of course, she was always one of the best in the UK, but I don't think that, um, you know, she had kind of a remarkable rise at that Wimbledon, then obviously US Open, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I remember a couple, obviously it was pandemic, but I remember a couple months before that she had uh, she had lost in like a sort of an open category tournament to a sort of Joe Schmo you know, in the, in the quarters type of thing. Gotcha. Um, and then, and then obviously I remember people pulling up her results at, um, at Tarbs under 14 and she had lost either first round or second round both years that she played. Oh, and really? of course, yeah. And of course that's not like, that's obviously not the, the be all end all, but, For but sure. I don't think she was like on a phenom superstar route the way someone like maybe Felix was, who was like consistently right. one of the best in the world at under 12, under 14 and people knew their name. Like, I think, you know, I think people in the UK knew who she was. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I think maybe a couple of people knew who she was, but she was, I mean, going into Wimbledon, I think she was ranked, uh, you know, above outside 500. Of the top 100, right? 
Yeah, I was gonna say outside the top 500, but don't quote okay. me on that. Okay. Um, but I mean, so I think that. Yeah, I also don't. But I also don't know. Like, there's there's more and more players now who are like, you know, staying more committed to school, um, before before transitioning. So it's possible that she wasn't able to do a full a full load. I don't know. I. Yeah. I I'm very reluctant to to come down on on any side without uh, without knowing the full the full story, which makes it for very bad. Um, the, not as clickbaity, but that's just uh, well, not me, homie. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll throw some <laughs> shots out there. But, <laughs> no, but anyway, okay. So I I said I was going to throw something at you today, and there's uh, certain things I guess that happen in tennis and coaching that that irk me from time to time. Mm-hmm. And with all this, I think you'll hear both of us, or specifically me, say most podcasts. I certainly don't have all the answers, but yeah. Um, I like to point things out that I think are are valuable. And one of those things is, or I'll start with this. What it, what are you, what's your overall position when it comes to um, the training of reaction time? Yeah, I I thought of I thought a bit about it because you said you wanted to talk about reaction time. I cannot say that I've ever spent any amount of time training it. Um on the, you know, training it explicitly on the tennis court. Right. That's not to say that my athletes maybe haven't done so in fitness sessions or in the gym. It's, it's possible. Right. That having been said, I'm a big believer and we could talk about it more, but I'm a big believer that, um, that tempo, like I think that what differentiates players, I mean, all my players know this because I talk about it, what differentiates players of different levels. So if we talk top 50 to top 200, to top 500 and so on and so forth, what differentiates players to different levels isn't what skills they have. It's the speed at which they can execute those skills. And I think that, uh, because, because if you look at the top, if you look at a top under 14 player, you know, you go look at a good uh, or an average under 16 player, you look and go like, okay, they can hit a short angle. They can take a cross court down the line. They can hit a kick serve. They can hit this. They can do all the same things that the pros do. And of course, with some players, you can see some obvious technical or tactical deficiencies, but there's plenty of players who can do every single thing that a pro can do. Right. The difference is that the pros do it at, you know, 1.1 seconds back and forth and the, and the juniors doing it at 1.3. And sure. when someone hits a little bit faster, then it breaks down. And that applies to the serve, to the return, to the volley, to the passes, to change of direction. It applies to everything. So I think I think the your ability to maintain your stroke, to maintain the effectiveness of your ball, to maintain all those skills at higher and higher tempos is what differentiates players and what what determines if you know your your ceiling. And so with all that having been said, I think that um you know, it does reaction time play a role in that potentially. I don't think of it that way. I tend to think of it more in terms of like coordination skills. Sure. But of course you need to react. You need to process that information visually. You need to organize your body and all of that falls under that um, umbrella. Right. And so, okay. I really like the way you broke that down. And I also like to hear that um, you're not necessarily one of those guys out there that has the flashing pods in the ground where you see how fast you can hit the pods and everything else. Because I'm not denying for a second that reaction time is certainly a thing. Um, my big thesis of this whole thing is that reaction time is not trainable. Okay. And, uh, and so to break this down further, I don't read a lot of books because I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but there is an author <laughs> I really like called David Epstein. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you read any of this stuff, but he wrote two books. Um, one's called The Sports Gene, which is kind of, uh, it's a rebuttal of sorts to Malcolm Glad- Gladwell's 10,000 Hours stuff. And is uh, David Epstein's other book is called Range, which talks about 
as a long story short, just like how um, multi-sport, multi-whatever um, people are much more successful in life. Two yeah. interesting books, and I'm not a guy who likes books, so check those out. But that said, in the sports gene, um, there's a big chapter that talks about, uh, or section at least, that talks about reaction time. And so they talk, and it specifically talks about like all these high level athletes and like, how is it that somebody like a Roger Federer just always seems to be in the right position? Or like, how is it he can receive 150 mile an hour serve from Roddick and kind of like, he's sort of already leaning one way or the other. Now, a big part of that is anticipation, right? Mm -hmm. But getting back to the reaction time thing, they tested a lot of things where like, Zach, you're a pretty good athlete. If, if you sort of played a family, family feud style game with, let's say an 80 year old lady, right? And so it's you in front of this lady, there's a little light in front of you. You each have your own button. The light goes off and you see how quickly you guys can press the button. Um, do you think there'll be a discernible difference in your ability to press the button versus the ladies? Yeah. Why do you think that? I think like, so that you think as... your, your position is that you think you could press the button faster than the 80 year old lady. I think that as you age, your reaction time goes down now. Yeah. Okay. So then there becomes a difference with like the speed at which, and I'm going to get some of these words wrong, but it's the speed of which like a synapse goes from the brain to the muscle to tell it to react. That's, not trainable like for the 80 year old lady or me or you it, it always goes at the same speed that's right? what it says in, and that's what it says in the book yeah now the difference yeah. might be between you and that lady like you might have more muscular strength so when mm. you actually fire it it's possible there's like very minuscule difference in speed because of muscular reasons mm-hmm. um but essentially the, the whole crux of this thing is that like when people train a reaction well you can't actually make your reactions happen faster mm. so then the whole thing, I guess, comes down to, well, what is it then if, if you accept that as a truth, which you certainly don't have to, because I think it's an interesting theory, but if you accept that as the, a truth, then why is it that some high level athletes just appear to have much better reaction time than, than others? Mm-hmm. What if I, I'm just throwing this out there and this is, uh, maybe this goes in a different direction or maybe it answers your question, but just as you say that, what if we, what if we had this as a sort of framework? which is that when an athlete, let's just say, let's just take tennis. Cause I don't know if you know this, but um, I sometimes I coach tennis. If, if an athlete is reacting to the opponent hitting a ball, yeah. there's first of all, there's a, there's a, a perception aspect, right? If we ignore the anticipation stuff, right. Before contact, yeah. but from the yeah. contact there's, there's a, there's clearly a perceptual aspect because there's a very clear difference between beginners and more advanced players. You can mm-hmm. see it. You can see that very clearly. And I talk about Absolutely. that with players and coaches and, and that's not an athletic thing so much as it is just knowing where to look and, and being trained to observe the right things, right? The, the, you know, beginner players observe sort of in their, in the sort of six foot bubble around them. Whereas, whereas more advanced players are watching the other side of the court. And of course we know that pros are able to watch sort of as the ball's leaving the strings, they're watching, they're, they're directing their gaze to that. And just to cut, cut in real quick, just to cut in real quick. If anybody's mm-hmm. inter- more interested in that stuff and actual visuals, of that stuff, Wayne Elderington from uh, ACE coach, I think that's his, his YouTube handle has a really cool series of stuff related to the perception that you're talking about there. But I thought mm-hmm. I'd just I'd plug that real quick. If uh, anybody's interested, pardon me. Is that yeah, for sure. No, no. So, so there's, there's that aspect, right? And then there's, like you alluded to, there's the muscular strength or explosiveness aspect of of reacting to the ball and whether it's with your feet or with your body, but generating, um, you know, explosive movements is the physical, mm-hmm. the physical piece. And then there's also a coordination piece, a motor skills piece, whatever you call it, we want to call it, of being able to organize those movements at a high speed. 
And I wonder if those three things together, and this is like two idiots talking on a podcast when I'm sure plenty of intelligent sports scientists have already come up with all these definitions, but like, I wonder if those three things together are really what when when people talk about like this person has you know react good reaction time or reaction skills or whatever i wonder if it's a combination of those three things the the perceptual aspect the mm-hmm. physical aspect and then the the coordination aspect um if those three things come together such that someone can react quickly because like you said if you see the ball early but then of course you're not explosive enough then it's going to look like you're slow Right. And similarly, if you see the ball early and you're explosive, but you can't coordinate your movements, then you're going to miss and you're going to look on, unco- you're going to look uncoordinated or you're going to look like you, you're, you're unable to react quickly because you're, you're looking out of control and off balance. Sure. Um, sure. And obviously if you're explosive and coordinated, but you don't see it on time, then you're going to react late. So <clears throat> I wonder if it's more that reaction time or, you know, reaction skills, at least within the domain of tennis, which of course is open skill. I wonder if it's a package deal of those three things. Right. And, and I think I think there's merit to that for sure. Um, I guess from a definition standpoint, from Tennis Canada's end, the two things are like, and just for, for anybody, anybody who might be listening, um, anticipation for an athlete would be anything before impact and uh, reaction would I think should be anything after impact. Would you agree with that sort of definition? I would swap reaction for perception. Okay, um, perception. Okay, but, yeah. but otherwise, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so within that, and I, th- I think you make valid points as to the, the three things that you suggest are why somebody might stick out from a reaction standpoint and the other. Um, David Epstein in his book goes into, into detail on his theory about it, or I sh- maybe I shouldn't say his theory, but I guess some, um, some theories about it, which is they did a bunch of testing with really, okay, a, a bunch of varying level of chess players. So like some grandmaster chess players and some chess players that went lower down the totem pole. Excuse me. I'm not familiar with lots of different levels of what chess players are called, but essentially what happened is they tried to test reaction stuff with chess players. Right. And, uh, throughout famously intense and reaction heavy sport. Of course. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. That's right. Um, (laughs) so anyway, (laughs) the way they did this was they would flash a chess board, um, for like, milliseconds to a very high level chess player. They then give them a chessboard and say, Hey, can you recreate the chessboard? And so apparently grandmasters can recreate um, chessboards with a 99.9% accuracy after only seeing it like the, the faintest flash of a chessboard. As sure. you go down the chess uh, ratings or rankings, obviously the ability to recreate what they saw on the board changes drastically. Um, mm-hmm. And so people use this theory to sort of uh, look at this in every other sport. And the theory that they, I guess, broke down from it is like, it is heavily perceptual and it is heavily anticipatorily driven. Um, and the way they explain it in tennis was like, okay, say we'll use Federer as an example again. Uh, if Federer is coming in and say the other player is, is preparing to, to hit a passing shot, there are small minute cues that Federer unconsciously sees uh, because his brain is taking a photo of how the athlete looks. And so over extended periods of time of taking millions upon millions of these little photos with your brain of how somebody looks, um, the athlete sort of intrinsically starts to um, eliminate certain options from being possible. And so I thought this was like, this is really interesting because uh, I mean, I'm sure you can think of your, some of your athletes that just have the ability where for some reason they just see something that people don't see. And an example I use of that is like, you're familiar with one of my athletes, Matt Overveld, who 
when he was younger, he was he's, he's quite long and um, and I would I would use use the word in a loving way gangly, uh, but that really <laughs> inhibited his ability to move well. And he certainly had difficult time changing direction for a lot of time. But it's the weirdest thing where like he rarely gets winners hit on him. He rarely gets aced. He's kind of like he just has has this way of sort of feeling where the ball is going to be. And that might be partly mm-hmm. a survival mechanism, too, where it's just like he's had to adapt ways to be in a good position um, outside of relying on just straight speed, you know? But what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Uh, like the, the photo taking aspect of, of things. Yeah, I was, I was curious how you were going to pull back uh, chess into tennis, but Not poorly, apparently I mean, I th- poorly, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, but I think that makes perfect sense. And I think it ties in a little bit with what I was saying, but I, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm huge on anticipation and perception when, and, and the fact and the fact that they can be developed. I think that's why it's also so interesting is because those, yep. those are two skills that can very clearly be taught. I actually, it's sitting in on my external hard drive, but at some point in the pandemic, I, I uh, had teamed up with Mark Tennant in the UK and we were going to set up an online, uh, online, uh, you know, website for coach education for tennis. And I basically filmed an entire course on anticipation and perception and then got uh, a little bit too lazy to, uh, to edit it together and uh, was back into coaching full-time and whatnot. But um, very cool. So I, I really, I really dug into it and, and found it super, super interesting. And I think, I think that makes perfect sense. I think that that is, it goes into what we were saying is that, yeah, if you have that information, if you're able to perceive more, and do it more quickly, then you're going to have a head start on uh, on you know weaker weaker players, and yep. then that allows you to use, as I was saying, allows you to use your physical skills and your coordination skills to to execute whatever technique it is you have to execute. Yeah. Um, the the question then, is, of course, becomes like, what's the best way to train that? Yeah. Um, so I actually came across a study this year um, that was pretty interesting, where they were uh, I was for soccer players. And they were training decision-making and there's a whole term for this, which is called above real time training. Okay. And it's with regards to video. And so I think they've actually done it with like, maybe like fighter pilots or something like that. I could be making that up, but I think I remember reading it in the introduction of the study. And basically the idea is that if you, in some fields, if you do like video training with people, so like on film and mm-hmm. you speed it up, to 1.5 times or to two times yep. speed, then the idea is that then when they're in real time, it actually feel it's much easier for them to make the, the right decision more quickly because they've been exposed to this above real time training. Interesting. And they did this and they did this with soccer players and they had a, they had a control group doing the training sort of at real time They had a, a group at 1.5 and a group at two. And, uh, and basically they would sort of like, play the tape and then pause it and they'd have a split second to decide like should the guy pass or shoot or whatever i don't know exactly Super something cool. like that and then the coaches would evaluate is it the right decision and this and that then they evaluated which group got better the very interesting thing all that i'm getting at is that the play the players in uh the athletes doing this testing got better over time at the testing it did ah, not transfer onto the this field. is a great point you're bringing around zach good it, it didn't transfer onto the field right and there could be a number of reasons for that. Of course, when they're watching soccer, it's like top-down view. So it's not at all the same camera angle as their eyes are on the field when they're watching. Um, there could be all sorts of other reasons for it. Yeah. But I think, um, and that goes, 
and that goes back to one of the things that one of the sort of modules in that course that I had developed was on visual on like vision training or visual training for tennis because there's a couple people online and I'm not as brave as you so I won't name names but people who are who are uh, hawking this sort of uh, vision training for tennis stuff and it always had this uh, air of bullshit to me of course and and I looked up to try and find back when I was doing this this course I looked up to try and find any examples of any studies that sort of validated this approach and and the closest you could come were a bunch of studies that that found that it improved the the players skills at whatever it was that they were training but it didn't transfer onto the court for sure um, and that's one and of the so oh gosh sorry, go you know as i was just gonna say and so that's that's the question then is like going back to what you're saying is how do we how do we then train those skills if we say okay guys like Federer are able to pick up more information and quicker then the question is how do we train that and there are ways that i presented in that in that course to to train perception very simple stuff like you you like i said earlier in the podcast like training people to watch certain areas in space and teaching them what to look for and giving them certain cues um and that does work is it the fastest way though i, I don't know for sure maybe some some new method of training will be innovated but yeah um i think that that is when we talk about reaction time and stuff, i think that is our sort of uh our query or our our, our vision is to try and find out what's the what's the best way to then train that ability for sure and to piggyback off that i think it like the the importance of even if you're doing something that's like um volume feeding i think the importance of the coach um taking taking a stance or taking an athletic enough stance and a a realistic enough looking um Mm. feed that the player is maybe unintentionally just getting volume on on seeing certain cues right yeah Um, yeah i think that's really important but to, to hammer out another thing that you talked about too it goes back to that like just those sports pods that you see all the time on, on stuff. And it's just, it's so not, it just how anybody would think that running and touching buttons is going to make you react faster is beyond me, Zach. And so I love that you called bullshit well, on it and uh, you were a little bit nicer than I'll be. Well, it'll, those videos are just well, so it'll, ridiculous. Uh, those even weren't, those weren't even the videos I was thinking of. I'll tell you which ones I was thinking of, but I think that will, I mean, I think that'll develop like some physical skills. Oh, for like, sure. Uh, you know, for sure. But again, direction so this... and agility and speed, but it will, it develop the, the, you know, the ability to react to a ball being struck 78 feet away. Um, that's a whole nother question. I'm not convinced that it will. Right. Well, no, okay, I would to jump in on that. So then yeah. I, I really believe that definitions are important, especially when it comes to like a sport as totally. worldwide as, uh, as our sport, we're like the definition yeah. of what it is we call something and what that means when it comes to training it are really important where if somebody's using those pods and they're working on and they call it maybe explosive training or something like that, like something that very clearly yeah. could be trained using those those lights that flash up, I'm cool with it. Yep. But as soon as you label something with it that is not possible to be trained within what you're doing, then I've got a big issue with it, right? Which yep. is a segue to... Yep. Um, I really wanted to rack your brain on, on these things where, again, I think definitions are important. And if, if I were to throw out to you, like the five phases of play in tennis, uh, as, as I train them, um, would you be willing to give me your feedback on a couple of theories I have right away? But we, I love that you brought up definitions. It's cause, ah, oh, it's so important right away. I would call you out because I don't, surely you mean five game situations, not five phases of play. Well, I'm I'm old mean... school, Zach. I, I am like what five years older oh. than you, so I don't know. Maybe I grew up in a different era. <laughs> uh, so maybe jump into that first. So so give yeah, me your okay, give me yours first. Give me your five first. Well, for me, okay. So for me, the five game situations are both back approaching uh, 
you know, passing, lobbing, and then serving and returning. Okay. For me, those are the five game situations. Right. And then I define three phases of play, offense, defense, neutral. And then I define six tactical intentions if we want to get really nerdy about it. Well, I do. Yeah, give me so, your six tactical intentions. And so if you're in offense already before you hit and your goal is to stay in offense, yep. that's like pure pure attacking, essentially. Okay. If you're in neutral and your goal is to get into offense with this shot, then that's what I would call forcing or okay. building. Very if good. you're in neutral and your goal is to just stay neutral, that's rallying. Mm-hmm. If you're in defense before the shot and the goal is to uh, get to neutral, that's neutralizing. And if you're in defense and the goal is to get to offense, that's counterattacking. And if you're in defense and you're just trying to stay in the point and stay in defense, then that's pure defense or staying, whatever you right. want to call it. I'm not too, too picky about the words, but in my, so that's, that's essentially my framework, five, five game situations, three phases and six intentions. Perfect. So, so mine real quick, which are, which I'm going to run through really, really quick uh, from, I guess one end of the spectrum to the other would be defending the intent to stay in the point or to buy time or neutralize. That's what how I would mm-hmm. define defending rallying intent to stay neutral or to neutralize the point. Um, building, which is an intent to take control or keep control of the point, uh, attacking slash finishing, intent to end the point um, uh, while in an advan- advantageous situation, and lastly would be countering, intent to steal a point uh, when potentially in a defensive situation. So we're kind of in the same ballpark, right? Yep. yep. Yeah, r- yeah, roughly, yep. Okay. So what I have a difficult time with when it comes to these definitions, if it, if we take like if we take rallying as a definition and we just agree that it's something along the lines of the intent to stay neutral, then mm-hmm. would that mean that whenever an athlete does anything um, to no longer only intent to stay neutral, they're coming out of that phase? Well, that's, I mean, that's why I'd sort of distinguish between intentions and phases because within the sort of neutral phase you have like forcing which is kind of at the top end of it and you have neutralizing which is kind of at the bottom end of it so it's kind of in the sort of family of rally skills of neutral skills yep um but i mean in a sense yes in a sense they're coming out of it if they're trying to do more with the ball and the reason i I say this is like for in our training environment and i'm not suggesting this is right by any means but um overall the concept of building is such a massive part of everything we train always and forever um to the point where like we've really within our group training over the past couple of months, we've done very little attacking. We've done some finishing, but we've done very little attacking and we've, we've done our best to get rid of words like aggressive. Cause I just don't think aggressive okay. the definition of aggressive. I don't think projects the right sort of framework or mentality for an athlete where building mm-hmm. is more like being proactive. You know what I mean? It's like without, without sort of overhitting. Um, yep. But this is a long winded way of me saying that um, I think a lot of, programs will talk a lot about rallying what when they really mean is building and because Mm. i think definitions are so important um i think that's a problem because i think an athlete has to know when they're just trying to be neutral and i think an athlete has to know when they are in fact trying to take control or keep control of a point now there's a variety of different ways that somebody could rally or build or attack and finish or counter like there's there's many different like sub sub categories with it within these categories um but I overall find that building is the most underutilized phase that is, is trained the least successfully, at least in North America. Well, the whole thing is made more complicated by the fact that to rally also just means to hit the ball back and forth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, that, so that also screws, that also screws everything up. But I, I think that, I mean, the higher level you go, of course, the less rallying you see. 
right? The yeah. less pure neutral. You I'm see. glad you said that, uh, not me. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have a hundred percent. I mean, even at a you know, even at a sort of quasi-national level, the juniors, you you at a at a decently high level anyway. It's yeah, it's all variations of offense, defense. Not to say that there can't be building, but I mean, pure neutral rallying where the goal is just to stay neutral, it happens very very rarely. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm a I'm a I mean, it goes a little bit back to my tempo point, uh-huh. which is that I think that it's much more it's much more important to train the ability to you know, hurt the person when they break their tempo a little bit. And conversely, to to fight, to, to sort of neutralize when they hit a better ball. I think those skills are, are at a high level much more important than, or much more relevant than training, like just pure neutral rallying back and forth. For sure. uh, because in a, point, in a point situation, it's not going to happen that often. No, agreed, man. Agreed for sure. Um, and then I, I threw this theory at you before as it pertains to definitions, but Mary France Mercier, MF, she, she told me one time years ago, she leads a lot of our coaching certification in Canada and she's, she's unfortunately had to certify me in four different courses. So God bless her. I can't believe she's still involved in certification because of that. Holy smokes. Good for her. Um, but she had two different definitions for countering and for the life of me, I can't remember what they were, but one was sort of counter attack. And there is a second type of counter that she referenced. And I only bring that up to say like, do you, do you know what the second type of counter would be? No, um, kitchen counter. I don't know. Uh, my, like in my head, <laughs> yeah, in, in, my, in my in my head, in my head. Yeah, I mean, you can counter with, you can counter with power, counter with precision. I mean, that's you know two variations of counterattacking, but it's still it's still counterattacking. Okay. Yeah, maybe those are the two um, that she outlined. I can't think of. That's uh, an interesting brain teaser, but I can't think of any other. Uh, I wish I had the answer other it. than counterattacking. Okay. Yeah. Well, MF, if you're listening, write in. Yeah. Call in one eight hundred one eight eight eight. No. Yeah, she'll take away my certification. Um, and so then I mentioned this to you, this is years ago, but if, okay, assuming that rally is the intent to stay neutral, then that would also assume that by staying neutral, there would be a recovery to the most advantageous part of the court at a specific time in a rally phase. Fair to say? Mm, yep. Okay. So anytime a player hits any shot that does not allow them to recover to the most advantageous position in the court by a, a certain time, um, then they would be countering. Thoughts? Uh, most, oh, I, you're, you're being so careful with your words and I'm not. I know. Sorry, man. I, I, no, it's, it's, it's really good. Um, I'm not sure they would be leaving the rally phase. Yes. I'm not sure if they would necessarily be countering like you could hit, like you could hit a shot that doesn't like you could hit a shot that doesn't allow you to recover to like the geographical middle or the sorry geometrical middle right attack you'd still be within right? within a realm of being in the right position right based on a number of factors yeah and the yeah, only reason i, I outline like this is because if we think of like yeah defending is buying time it's like well what are you buying time for like a you're trying to hit the ball on the court but you're also trying to buy in time so that you can get back into an advantage advantageous position in the court to some extent right if rallying is to stay neutral then i mean that one's pretty obvious where again you're trying to stay neutral in a in a in some position of the court that allows you to do that building you're probably getting into uh, again you're somewhere where you're in control of the court probably with more of a proactive or advanced recovery 
attacking and finishing would be would be similar, but it'd be more net based. But when we get into countering one, like a lot of time countering happens without the idea of a recovery being at a certain point or a certain time, right? It's almost like the only one of those phases where the definition in a sense is not closely linked to recovery. That's really interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way before. It you could be right. I have to I have to let it sit with me for a little bit. Yeah. Um, the only I mean, the only thing that you say I'm not totally sure. Maybe I was gonna say I'm not totally sure that I want uh defense to be linked exclusively to buying time. Okay. But if we talk about like pure defense, like just staying in the point, yeah, then then you might be right. Then it is well, sometimes it's also just about getting the ball back in. But yeah, but that but I understand what you're I understand um, where you're getting at there. I think. Right. Um, but yeah, I also it's like. Interesting. I mean, maybe maybe it is the. I I, I see where you're coming from. Well, maybe it I is mean, the only intention where you're you're sacrificing your uh, recovery. Right. And then if is that not, is if that relevant at like, all? Is that is that distinction useful at all? Well, I mean, yes and no because the only reason I bring it up is again we go back to like the definitions of things and we're training training athletes then if and i know i've spent a lot more time thinking about this than you have but if there's some world where we agree that that is true that countering is one of the only phases where recovery doesn't happen at a certain point at a certain time then anytime a player does anything that does not allow them to recover appropriately they'd be in a countering phase right and maybe that's true. And I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure why that matters to me or why I've lost sleep over this. But uh, here I am. <laughs> I guess it's. I mean, it's an interesting test for the athletes. Yeah. Right. To you know, to test them and say, are you able to get in position here? And if they can do it with the shot that they hit, then you go, hey, good job. But then it it forces a sense of urgency on their part to get recovered. And if they can't, then you go like, well, you've just committed yourself to. You've just admitted that you're you know, on defense and you're counterattacking him. Is that what you wanted to do? And they go, no. And then so, well, so pick a shot that allows you to recover. That's um, exactly why it's like, important, Zach. You hit it on the head. There we go. I, I figured that was where, I figured that's where you're going for that. Yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting sort of accountability tool um, for the athletes. I yeah. don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's the way I would look at it. It feels a little bit roundabout, but it's sure. interesting. I'm going to have to think about it more because it's a distinction. I mean, I do like those sorts of distinctions, uh, distinctions and it's one that I hadn't, um, I hadn't considered. So yeah, cool. Fair play to you. Well, I, I mean, what I, made you I, think I, of it? I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. There was something that happened like two summers ago where it's essentially that exact situation you outlined where a player had hit a shot that I thought was overly risky in a situation that didn't call for it. So I suggested mm -hmm. that it was like, I mean, it might be tough to counter from that situation. And they were like, oh, I wasn't counting. I was whatever else. Mm -hmm. And so like we we then didn't agree in, on the phase that the athlete or I guess the, the the intention of the player. Yeah. And so that just started this uh, this uh, ADD based spiral of emotion for two years thinking about the definition of countering. <laughs> and here we are now. <laughs> but I also outlined that I, like I might not be right with this. And I've, I've mentioned this, like yep. my, my right-hand man, Jordan, who is this great and he's like far superior at most coaching things than I am. But him and I talk about this a lot because we're, we're just giant losers. And this is the stuff we talk about when we go for beers, but I would yep. actually be really curious if like, yeah, like if, if you don't mind spending some time thinking about it, because I'd, I'd be curious as what you, what you come back with. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely could. Um, 
Yeah. It's interesting too, because like, I don't know if you ever, it's a little bit that sort of reaction time thing, but like, if you ever are aware of your, the areas where you just go like, man, I just never coached that. And some coaches coach it all the time and other coaches, you go like, Oh, those people coach. And I think it's probably just different, you know, more than one way to skin a cat, like different approaches to to get the same result. But like, I, I spend so little time feedbacking recovery and it's not that I never do. There's right. definitely plenty of situations where where it's like, oh, you've got to adjust your recovery here, or oh, make sure you recover that, or occasionally the the technique of the movement, the you know, the technique of the footwork to recover and stuff. Yeah. Um. So it does come up, but I'm just I I don't spend that much time talking about it, and I and I don't really know why that is. Um. Maybe it's the level of the players that I coach. Maybe it's just a a gap. Maybe I find other ways to address it. Maybe I just pick it up when it's maybe they just get exposed for it because of the types of drills that I do. I do, I, you know, I don't do too many, um, you know, closed drills where they can get away with poor recovery. So maybe, I mean, maybe it's because of that, but it's just something that I, yeah. So maybe it's just something that I, uh, that, uh, doesn't, you know, they get, they get the feedback, uh, from the drill as opposed to from the coach. But, uh, so all that to say that it's just not something that I spend a lot of time uh, feedbacking. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting uh, distinction, Uh but, uh, but yeah, but I do, I, I will, I will, I will die on the hill of phases versus intentions. And I, and I can't justify why that's important, but I, I, for me, I think there's a big difference between the three phases and the six intentions, but I'm not sure. Oh, no, I'm right there with you. Cause I, I re, I'm not sure if I so. mentioned, but I, I recently helped out um, with the coach two certification in sort of like a course facilitator capacity. And I was just filling mm-hmm. in for, for CFs that are, that are awesome and great. But one of the things I noticed was that a lot of the new curriculum with Tennis Canada, they, they went down to, um, yeah, it was just, um, what was it? Defend, attack, rally, essentially were the three. And mm-hmm. uh, I just thought there was so much importance with the other two and like so much distinction with the other two that I wonder if long-term, if, if that's not helpful. Oh, hold on. We, we have to, hold on. We have to jump into this. So for you, the other two are countering and building. Yeah. Why don't you have neutralizing in there? Well, to me, okay. So it could, I mean, I have attacking and finishing as one and rallying slash neutralizing one. Interesting. Interesting. Because for so this me, that's almost fun, right? weirder that you have oh, I like it. five instead of six. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. I mean, in fairness, like rallying, as we discussed at, at a high level, is probably the least relevant one. So then you could just get rid of that and have pure defense countering, neutralizing building and attacking yeah. um or, or finishing so i guess you could you could sort of eliminate that but um i don't know i in i in my head because i eventually i or ultimately i end up grouping it all or i end up looking at all through the lens of like situations and like skills right that are linked to these intentions and phases yeah right and yeah. so if you say like pure defense i envis i i envision an athlete you know scrambling you know flick of the wrist like just barely touch the ball like and that's a skill and you can train that and then i if you talk about countering it's you know so and so on and so when i think of neutralizing i think of uh you know i imagine someone generally you know hustling to hustling to get through a tough ball being strong with the legs like feeling like the pressure is on them but then still being able to, to to push the person back when maybe they could have broken down for sure um and of course neutralizing can look like different things but it's it's in that sort of ballpark yeah I'd agree um, there. Yeah. whereas whereas with rallying i it feels it feels like you know different skills you know maybe they're maybe they're stepping into the ball maybe they're more set up maybe they're changing direction like 
so I don't know. I don't think it's a massive difference, but they, it does sort of feel like they're uh, they they lead towards different situations and different skills. Yeah. Uh, which is why I would separate them. But I don't know. I mean, that's the that I guess that that's the important that that's where this stuff becomes important because of course plenty of people can sit there and go like Jesus, what a bunch of fucking losers! Like just go out and coach <laughs> tennis. And there's, <laughs> there's plenty of coaches who who if they listen to this would say that. But For sure. I mean ultimately but the argument in favor favorite of favor of it of course is that you have to be equipped to observe every skill that needs to be observed and to coach every skill that needs to be coached agreed and so you have to and having a framework increases the likelihood of that because then you can look for all these things and say aha i need to train this right whereas if your framework is forehands and backhands then you might not pick out the difference between an attacking forehand, a rally forehand, For sure. a neutralizing forehand, and so on and so forth. That's very simplistic, but you get the point. No, totally. And so, and so having a framework like that then increases the chances that you observe all the nuances and then that you can develop all those nuances. Yeah. Whereas if your framework is too simple, then you, then you miss out on some details. So that's the argument in favor of it. But um, yeah. And then from a, coaching, like, from a coaching perspective as well, it's like you might have this whole, like you might have a group of athletes for three years and you might notice that they all are like, excellent mm-hmm. finishers like they just attack and finish so well but there's other phases that yeah. they don't do well so then it's like you almost give yourself feedback based on that three years of training you did with them of like well what was the reason why they were so like equipped at these skills but maybe not as equipped as in, in these ones right yeah. um yeah yep definitely well al miller thanks for joining me man thanks zach thanks for the great bio and um yeah i appreciate it appreciate <laughs> you and I'm, I'm sure i'll chat with you as the as the new year uh Beckins? Never used that word before that's... in my life, but here we are. Hey, man. Well, you pronounced it right, so that's good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff, man. Um, thank you for the good bio. Thanks for uh, supplying such uh, interesting conversation, man. Happy to, dude. Happy to. Talk to you next time, man. Cheers. Yes, sir. We'll see you.